Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. All right, guys, welcome to Conspiracy Normal. It's Adam. I'm here by my lonesome tonight, but I have a great guest uh, with us tonight, and that is Drew Hurst Beeson, who has written uh, extensively about the Yuba County Five case uh, and the Zodiac Killer. But we're, we're and I want to maybe talk a little bit about the Zodiac Killer stuff, you know, uh, later on. Sure. But uh, tonight what we're going to talk about is the db cooper case and this is one of those that has really like fascinated me over the years um of course i'm kind of like i'm a child of the like unsolved mysteries um <laughs> age era and i can remember seeing that on unsolved mysteries back in the day and you know it's one of those cases that like he was a very whoever did it was very very ballsy to do what they did and pull it off and we'll kind of go over the specifics of the case for people that don't know but i think drew what i'd like to start with is how you personally became interested in the db cooper case and we can kind of talk about the for people that don't know about what db cooper did sure adam um you know just like you i got into it through unsolved mysteries that one episode uh where they covered it because that was you know one of my favorite shows at the time of course the great robert stack uh that was the best thing going on tv probably still my all-time favorite tv show and i when i watched that i was just enthralled with it and then uh, not long after that episode i i think i'd seen a rerun on in search of with leonard nimoy who covered db cooper and that one came out in 79 but i think i watched that after yeah. i had seen the unsolved mysteries episode which came in in, in the, i think the late 80s so that's the same thing that happened to me i just i saw it and was just like man this is this is cool you know this guy's wearing this this suit with a black tie he's got the shades on he's got that whole uh you know him against the the, the man kind of deal going and he got away with it that was what was so cool about it you know he didn't kill anybody uh kind of route you know um rattled some people a little bit but no one got killed and uh they never found him i mean it was just the unsolved aspect that just salt you know totally sucked me into this case and then it kind of got renewed uh some years later when a researcher named galen cook started coming on coast to coast am of course i'm sure you know well and uh he started talking about a suspect name of uh, william gossett who went by uh, later changed his name to wolfgang gossett and uh galen was real articulate he's an attorney up in the seattle area and uh, that kind of rekindled my interest in the case, hearing him, you know, uh, his research on a guy named uh, uh, William Gossett. So uh, that's kind of, you know, just led me to digging in more and kind of like being a lurker on some of the message boards and then becoming uh, sucked into what they now call the vortex. And that's a phrase coined by a guy named Mark Metzler, 
who is a, a real avid skydiver. And then, of course, the uh, All D.B. Cooper podcast by a good friend of mine named Darren Schaefer uh, wound up naming his podcast that, the Cooper Vortex, based on that name. And uh, the podcast became really popular. I was the first person that reached out to Darren asking to be on that show. So that that when that happened to him, he said he knew he had something. Because everybody else, he had to go hunt down to be guest on that show. But I was the first guy that emailed him and said, hey, I want to come on and talk about D.B. Cooper. He said, sure, let's book it. So that's kind of how it went. Yeah, it, it amazes me for something that it was a one-time thing that happened. And it amazes me how much the story of D.B. Cooper resonates with a lot of people. And like you just said, like there's this podcast, there's all these books, um, you know, uh, Serfiel, my co-host, who's not with us this evening, he um, lives up in Seattle. And he told me just recently there was a, the, you just said the Cooper Con up there. Cooper so there's like conventions devoted to this. And I saw um, when I was watching uh, some of your YouTube channel um uh there was a picture and i guess it was the cooper con m- maybe but like people were dressed up like db cooper oh yeah they dressed the, up yeah yeah it's it, it's it's very cool and it's interesting yeah. and it's like there, there's also this thing with db cooper um kind of like my own observation is that like he he very much looks like kind of like that classic kind of man in black yeah, that you see exactly. In the, in the you know, world too. So there's like this, this dogs or something like that. Yeah, or Mad, yeah. show Mad Men. You know, he's just coming yeah. that. Little, I think that's where they all kind of got inspired from that. Right, right. Look. I mean, I never watched Mad Men, but wasn't there some like I remember people started talking about the the Mad Men was going to go that way where the main character was DB yeah, Cooper. Don Draper. Like I've not, I've never yeah. been, didn't watch much of it, but I think he's the character was Don Draper who kind of right. gets in there as a suspect <laughs> yeah yeah and i think like it was supposed to end that way or something something like that i've never watched that that show but um but for people like like i said for people that don't know um the specifics of the case of db cooper can we kind of like can you kind of like recount that what happened yeah this all started out it was uh thanksgiving eve november 24th of 1971 a man is walking through the Portland International Airport. He's wearing, he's carrying an anti-shea case. He's wearing a, a, a sport coat. He's got a, a black tie on. And he walks up to the ticket counter and he buys a one-way ticket to Seattle for $20 cash. He uh, boards the plane. He takes uh, one of the seats in the back row. And a uh, very unassuming looking guy. Looks just like a regular businessman uh, traveling somewhere. And... Uh, as soon as the the plane takes off, heading for this just little a short milk run going from Portland to Seattle, just heading due north. I think that's you know normally like maybe an hour flight, you know, a little milk run. And uh, as soon as the plane kind of levels off after takeoff, uh, one of the stewardesses comes back there. Her name was uh, Florence Schaffner, and uh, he uh, gets her attention and he and hands her a note, and and she thinks he's flirting with her, and she just said like many businessmen do because she was attractive in her 20s and she just kind of put it in her in her pocket and he said no miss i need you to read that note and kind of tugs on her arm and she reads the note it says i have a bomb and i need you to sit by me 
And uh, that got her attention. So she winds up sitting next to uh, this man. He bought the ticket, by the way, under the name Dan Cooper. That's mm-hmm. who the ticket agent, uh, that's the name he gave to the ticket agent. See, uh, the ticket agent, uh, it was Northwest Orient, uh, Northwest Orient Flight 305. And uh, he's on the plane with her, and now he's got her attention. He opens up his anti shake case, and it looks like uh, a bomb, and that's what it's supposed to look like. To this day, we don't know if it was real or not, but it looked real enough to her. And he says, I need you to, to take down some notes for me. And then he began, uh, began to make his demands. He wanted four parachutes. He said two front and two back, which would be two complete sets, two back parachutes and two uh, what they would call a, a belly reserve. And he said, I want $200,000 in cash. Some people believe he said in negotiable American currency. I don't know if myself, oh, I believe that, but that's one of the things that he that he said in his demands that she's writing down. And then uh, he's going to want the plane to be refueled when they get to Seattle. So she uh, takes these notes up to the cockpit and tells him what happened. Hey, this guy's hijacking the plane. Here's his demands. He's got a bomb. It looked real to me. So the, the people in the cockpit immediately got in contact with Northwest Orient and they said definitely you know what we're going to meet his demands we're not going to play games with this guy and this was a game changer no people had hijacked airplanes before but never with a bomb in a briefcase this is something that was has not been encountered before so uh the flight it takes them a while they're going to try to uh they're trying to round up this two hundred thousand dollars in cash at one of the banks in seattle and they're trying to catalog some of the the uh, serial numbers on the on this money there they have uh two different groups basically working to try to to find these parachutes and they wind up getting four parachutes taken by taxi cab over to the SeaTac airport so what they're basically doing is just they're the plane is circling around SeaTac because he's waiting for uh them to collect all this stuff so they just keep telling the passengers had no idea the plane was being hijacked yeah. only only the flight crew nobody on board knew anything was wrong whatsoever. So after about a, a two and a half hour delay or so, uh, they, they they were told that everything is at the airport. So he tells them they can go ahead and land the plane far away from the terminal because he's worried about snipers and things like that. They bring the money on to him. They brought it in a, in a bank bag instead of a knapsack that he asked for. So he's a little perturbed by that. Um, they bring him his four parachutes. They're there on board. And so he winds up letting all the passengers go because now they've met his demands. But he wants the the whole flight crew to stay, which were uh, two pilots, a first officer and three stewardesses, which they used to just call stews back in the day. So they're all going to remain on board now that he has everything that that he's asked for. Uh, An interesting thing is, was what he wanted to do was is to have the plane take off from Seattle now that his demands were met with the aft staircase down. And that's a staircase in the belly of the back of the plane. This was a Boeing 727. It had that unique feature of that that back staircase in the belly of the plane. And uh, Cooper told them that he wanted the plane to take off with that stair down. And the pilots uh, did not know that could be done, that the plane could actually take off with that stair down. And they uh, said, we're not doing it. You know, this is going to cause damage to the aircraft. And Cooper relented. And he said, okay, that's fine. Go ahead and take off with the, with the staircase up. So the plane takes off, uh, ramps them on board, complete flight crew on board, and somewhere near just north of Portland, Oregon, after they've been in the plane for a while, he jumps out of that aft stair. He has 
one of the stewardesses, her name was Tina Mucklow, that spent the most time with D.B. Cooper. He had uh, her help him lower the aft staircase in mid-flight, and then he told her to go back up to the cockpit after he donned one of the parachutes. And, he, you know, she, she recalled him putting it on like he knew what he was doing. Um, he still didn't have the money secured, so he cut one of the other shoots up, parachutes up with a pocket knife, and he wound up strapping it to his body. Uh, this bank bag, he wound up just tying the shroud lines from another parachute to his body, kind of MacGyver-like is what Brian Burns likes to use, my friend, when describing it. And uh, somewhere over where they think maybe was either, you know first thought to be Ariel, Washington, and then possibly also Battleground, Washington, somewhere north of Portland, Oregon, they felt a pressure bump in the plane. And that's where they believe D.B. Cooper leapt out of that aft stair and he was never found, never seen again until $5,800 of the $200,000 ransom was found by a young boy named Brian Ingram. He was eight years old at the time at a place called uh, the Tina Bar, like a little beach area just off of the Columbia River. He was having a barbecue uh, with his family, a little picnic, and he was uh, digging up some firewood. It was cold. And... Um, wound up finding $5,800 of D.B. Cooper's deteriorated money. And they got the FBI involved. They were able to verify with the serial numbers that this was part of D.B. Cooper's loot. And until this day, not another uh, $20 bill. They were all 20s that he that he uh, asked for. And they have still not found one other uh, single bill from the hijacking other than the roughly $5,800 Brian and Ingram found in 1980. So that's kind of a case in of itself is how the money got buried at the Tina bar. So in D.B. Cooper world, as we call it, there's two mysteries. One, who D.B. Cooper was. And right. number two, how did the money wind up at the Tina bar? Is still hotly debated among us Cooperites, as we're called, uh, till this day. So the money, uh, was it along the line of where they believe that he jumped out of the, out of the airplane? No, it was not. Uh, yeah. There's several theories about how it may have gotten there. It may have become detached from Cooper and it got into the Columbia River or the, the Lewis River and somehow wound up getting deposited up on that, that beach shore. It was three stacks of $20 bills. Some of the rubber bands were still intact. And remember, now this has been almost eight and a half years or so. Uh, wherever this money's been and there's still rubber bands there, you know how those things can degrade. Like in your, your garage, you could just touch them and they'll just fall apart but some of the rubber bands were still intact around three bundles of the money they were stacked on top of each other just below the surface of the sand so uh, heavily deteriorated all the corners were missing from them but uh for the most part they were intact you could tell they were 20 dollar bills uh the ingrams found them they didn't tell anyone at first so they took them home i think uh they tried to to wash them in their sink trying to clean them up because they were deteriorated trying to see if they could maybe use the money or not but they wound up reporting it so um it's still a mystery as to how the money got there there's a debate with it, whether it was planted to be found um uh, you know there, there's some a few people out there believe that the plane did fly over this place called uh the tina bar uh but it, that's impossible the plane was being tracked by radar yeah. Uh, there were spider jets that traced it, even though they couldn't, you know, they were too fast for the plane. So they had to keep circling around. They never saw Cooper jump out, but right. it was pretty well documented, the flight path uh, where the plane was. And it did not fly over this particular area. So the debate is whether it was planted by Cooper. Did it get, did he plant it later? Did it somehow get into the water stream and somehow washed up? 
those theories are, are, are hotly debated all the time now. I want to talk about the potential suspects, but there was one of the suspects, I believe it was, uh, was it Dwayne Weber? I believe it was it him that confessed to his wife that he was DB Cooper. Yes. Yes. That was Dwayne Weber. He uh, confessed to his wife, Joe Weber, who's a, who's a character. I mean, uh, her, she's more interesting than I think whoever DB Cooper was, because she was uh, a type of woman that would call certain DB Cooper researchers like Bruce Smith. We call him the mayor of Cooperville. Uh, we'd call him at like three in the morning, trying to convince him that, that, uh, that Dwayne was Cooper and most of the hardcore Cooperites never believed that Twain was D.B. Cooper, but Joe believed it or seemed to believe it. And her story was that Dwayne had confessed to her that he was Cooper and that she had seen his uh, plane ticket from there. And of course, she can't produce the ticket anymore, unfortunately, yeah, for Joe. Right. And she passed away, I think, two years ago. Uh, but she was steadfast in her belief that, that her husband, Dwayne Weber, was Cooper and then at one point he took her back out to that area around, uh, you know, around area Washington or, and, and, and he kind of retraced the steps of where he supposedly uh, jumped and, you know, pretty much was it was a death bed confession to his wife that he was Cooper. Cause there's an HBO documentary that came out a couple of years ago that talks about, I think at least three different suspects. And yeah, three, and I think Joe it's at least, Three I mean, not right. Joe, but uh, Dwayne. Dwayne was right. was certainly one of those in the HBO special. Um, and did he say that he planted the tell her that he planted the money there? I don't recall if he, if he ever yeah. told her that. He did tell her that he was Cooper. Uh, she believed it, and uh, and God bless her. She would drive everyone crazy about it. She would email all anyone interested in the case or the hardcore db cooper researchers all the time she seemed to get access to things you know some information that other people didn't know that was credible not uh pointing to Dwayne being cooper but just some some other you know tidbits that i think did turn out to be true in the case in general so it's really strange with joe weber that she did seem to have some kind of inside source maybe an fbi person we don't know mm -hmm. Uh, maybe trying to find out what other people knew, but uh, she was uh, very eccentric. And um, I, I think she's more interesting than most suspects, her, you know, uh, his wife and, and herself. Yeah. Often people involved in these type of cases often are. Um, some of that stuff is just as interesting as the case itself. Absolutely. Uh, is there an official position that the FBI says that they think happened to D.B. Cooper or is there just nothing? What I have heard by some people that they think that there was no way he could have survived the fall or the and that he died. And but is that an official position or is that more just just it, more it's, speculation? It's not an official uh, position, of course. Officially, the case is closed by the FBI. They have closed the case officially. Yeah. Um, the narrative that they put out there, especially early on, that he that he did die in the jump. He was in no pool, and he just argued into the ground somewhere. Or he fell into the Columbia River and froze to death, and he's uh, fish bait. Was the was a hard narrative put out initially by the FBI? Even though, as years go by and we study the case more, it was extremely survivable uh, in a, in a lot of ways. It was it was definitely a hazardous jump, but it was it was very survivable. A lot of research has been done about you know paratroopers. I got any uh, Marty Andrade has done a lot of work into. Uh, paratroopers going into World War II and stuff like D-Day. 
uh, how high their survival rate was. Of course, those are static line type jumps, but they were the survival rate was was really high. I mean, even with the anti aircraft coming up at those guys, the survival rate from the jumps were very very high under you know hazardous conditions. So there's a lot of things that point to how survivable it was. And they talk about how dense the, the woods are in that part of uh, southern Washington. And uh, they're really, that's really kind of overblown, you know, because uh, like I mentioned Darren Schaefer, the host of the Cooper Vortex. He's from Woodland, Washington, which is not far from where, you know, the first FBI drop zone was. And he said, you know, it's it's not like the jungles of Vietnam. You know, he's like, you sure. can find a house not too far away. You, If I got, he said, if I, you know, I'm not a mountain man, but if you drop me off in the middle of that stuff, I could get out fairly easily, you know, being from the area. So I think that kind of got blown out of proportion a little bit about how how rugged the terrain really was. Yeah. So the speculation could also be that he was able to get out, find a road, and and get back to civilization. Yeah. But besides the guy that, that you believe, and and I think it's a very strong case. Well, some of the other people that we we can kind of rule out. Um, like I said, there's Dwayne, uh, Dwayne Weber, Lynn Doyle Cooper, L.D. Cooper. Yep. Um, and Barb Dayton. And these are the ones that I remember from uh from that documentary. And there was mm-hmm. also um was it McCoy? I didn't write that one down, but that actually is kind of a funny story. The guy that the copycat essentially of DB Cooper. Yeah, he would have been the first of the, the real known copycats or the most well known copycat was Richard Floyd McCoy. Um yeah. those are all good, you know, those are all interesting suspects in in how people came to know him. Uh, like Barb Dayton was obviously um, a man who transitioned to a woman. I think he had the first gender reassignment surgery in the state of Washington, I believe. Uh, so it's such an interesting story how uh, uh, D.B. Cooper could have been transgendered. But uh, that comes right. from a couple named Ron and Pat Foreman that knew uh, her. And uh, she was a really good pilot, kind of a kind of a daredevil, daredevil herself. And it's just a great uh you know, like Seattle slash Portland type story where, you know, D.B. Cooper could have been uh, a, a transgender. Uh, and, you know, none of us can put our suspect on the plane. So I don't like to really completely dismiss any suspect. But, sure, um, sure. you know, I think it, it, Barb Dayton is a fan favorite, but not a, a realistic favorite among, uh, you know, devoted Cooperites. And uh, L.D. Cooper, which... Almost to me sounds like it would be too obvious to give you a real name as the. <laughs> yeah, why would he use his real last name? Yeah. You know, Andy Cooper was one of the earlier suspects, and he comes uh, from his niece Marla Cooper, uh, who who's very a really nice lady. I, you know, I follow her on on Facebook and stuff. Haven't really ever talked to her in person, but uh, she had just you know compelling story from when she was a little girl about how her uncle LD. And uh, I think I think it was another uncle, not her father, who uh, came to uh, Thanksgiving that year because, of course, Cooper Jump was right before Thanksgiving, and they were bloodied up from something they had done together that looked like it was some kind of crime. And it just made a really great story initially coming from Marla, who's very believable, very pretty lady. That doesn't hurt her case any. Uh, and uh, it was just a great story about LD and, and uh, you know, I think he had been in World War II. I don't know if he was a paratrooper or not, but uh, he was from the area. I think his uh, brother uh, did work for Boeing for a while, which was kind of an interesting tie-in. Uh, maybe, you know, maybe knew the jet, maybe could have had the knowledge that that, that plane could have been jumped. So it made, it made for a compelling story. 
and he winds up getting ruled out based on DNA, which they don't have DB Cooper's DNA, uh, which was interesting, but they at least acted like they did. And they were able to get some of LD's DNA from a guitar strap that I think Marla was in possession of. And it was negative compared to whatever they thought they had for Cooper, which they don't have, which was kind of unfair uh, to Marla. But, uh, you know, over time, he just kind of faded in the back a little bit as far as suspects go uh, among the really hardcore D.B. Cooper researchers. He, he kind of takes a back seat. But, you know, I think he's better than some. I, I really do. You know, uh, D.B. Cooper was described as swarthy, having really dark skin. And that's something L.D. Oh. had more than any of the definite Caucasian suspects. He had really naturally. I mean, I don't know if it's naturally that way or he was in the sun a lot. He had very, very dark skin. Uh, he had that going for him and, and a great story from his niece. So, uh, you know, I, I would not say L.D. was was ever a bad suspect. Uh, as far as the DNA, some people talked about the cigarette butts. That Yeah, that's one of the most interesting aspects of this case. So when Cooper hijacked the airplane, he smoked eight Raleigh filter tip cigarettes. And Back they knew when the you could do that on an airplane. Initially collect them. Um, you know, and that's basically, I think the whole, the whole event played out in about three and a half hours from initially getting on the plane, uh, giving her the notes and hijacking the plane and then it's circling around SeaTac uh, and then uh, refueling and then taking off was, I think roughly three and a half hours. I might be off. I'm sure uh, Ryan's correct. Trying to correct me right now, whenever he listens to this, but, uh, but you know, eight cigarettes is quite a bit in a three and a half hour span. That's almost the level of a chain smoker. You know, of course that might've been a way to, to keep his nerves calm, but um, really strangely, the FBI lost the cigarette butts and we don't yeah. know exactly when. And this was of course, way before the advent of DNA, but the FBI just does not destroy evidence like that. Like I, I say this all the time. If they found a good candidate for Cooper and they said, you know, and it was you're trying to make a circumstantial case because this is before the age of DNA. And you would say, um, Mr. Smith, uh, we understand that you smoke. Your friends t tell me that you smoke Raleigh filter tip cigarettes. And you said, yeah, so what? Um, they couldn't bring those into court to display as evidence because if they thrown them away. Uh, so from what I know, those cigarettes are long gone, thrown away. I remember hearing one rumor that maybe one of the cigarettes survived because someone had taken it home for whatever reason, like a souvenir, and then that might reappear. But mm. I think that was just uh, just a, a, a fable. <laughs> I think they were destroyed. Uh, there's also they recovered a hair from the back of the headrest that they believe was D.B. Cooper's, and it was put on like a little small glass slide, and that was – uh, bounced around from different places and now the slide is missing and i think possibly destroyed uh, i'm not sure this the slide could be still somewhere in hiding in an fbi office field office or maybe it made its way to fbi headquarters we don't know but they've still never found the hair slide and then there's mccoy who they do talk about the also in that hbo documentary and they talk yeah. about well it could be him because he actually pulled it off in the next year, 1972. What they don't go into is just how much of a mess his hijacking was as compared to D.B. Cooper's. It was a complete mess. It was almost a polar opposite other than the fact that McCoy hijacked the 727. Uh, 
and jumped out of the app stare. Other than that, the comparisons end. You know, people talk about how similar it was, and he did do it just months after DB Cooper did it. Uh, McCoy asked for half a million dollars, uh, whereas Cooper asked for only two hundred thousand. Yeah, McCoy asked for uh, five hundred thousand. He goes under the alias James Johnson, just kind of this benign sounding name. Uh, winds up uh, hijacking it with a uh, with a grenade, which is actually a paperweight. It was a fake grenade. He had a pistol, and uh, that's all he used was a pistol and a fake grenade. And winds <laughs> up um, hijacking the plane, making the demand for two hundred thousand dollars. I mean, f- sorry, five hundred thousand dollars. And uh, it was a, a comedy of errors on on his his particular hijacking, where Cooper was pretty clean. Some people might argue that Cooper made a few mistakes, but he really didn't. He asked for all of the notes back. Cooper was always very calm. Like everyone that encountered him described yeah. him as so calm, which I think really points to who he was. But McCoy was a nervous wreck. The first thing that he did was his wife had typed out his pre-planned hijack instructions and they were in a manila envelope. And McCoy left that in the waiting area at, at at the airport. So he winds up, he gets on the plane to hijack it. He goes to the lavatory and uh, a, a, an agent for the airline sees this manila envelope laying on a table in the waiting room. So he figures it belongs to a passenger. And I don't know if anything was written on side of it, outside that said, hey, hijack instructions, Richard, or if it was just a plain envelope. But the person <laughs> that grabbed it did not look inside or his whole thing would have been upright right, in there. Right. Because he yeah. would have, oh, wait a minute. This is hijack instructions. Uh, but he yeah. didn't. So he, the person that worked for the airline walks onto the plane that's already fully loaded now. And he's waving the, the manila envelope in the air. And he said, did anyone leave this in the waiting area? And McCoy gets out of the bathroom after putting some makeup on and kind of his disguise, so to speak. And he sees that agent waving his hijack instructions in the air. And he quickly claimed it, of course. Those are mine. Those are mine. I mean, can you believe that? I don't think D.B. Cooper would have ever left, left the hijack instructions in the waiting area. But McCoy did. That's a true story. So that's the first near mishap that could have blown the whole thing up, literally. No pun intended right there. Uh, so McCoy gets his envelope back. He winds up uh, sitting close to a, a guy that's a prisoner that's being transferred somewhere. And this prisoner already can tell something's up. You know, this guy, he's a crook. And he's looking at McCoy like, this guy's really, you know, agitated already. Like he, he's already catching this guy, this man's suspicion. So uh, McCoy, right then and there, you know, just winds up uh, giving his notes. I'm hijacking the plane. Everybody knew it. He was, he had makeup running down his face from trying to disguise himself. He had brought. Well, interestingly enough, one thing Cooper didn't do was uh, bring his own parachute. Cooper took a parachute that was provided to him. Right. McCoy brought his own parachute on board for his hijacking. Although he never got to use it, the rip cord somehow got tied up uh, or hooked on some on, a, on the bottom of the plane seat or something like that. It actually deployed in mid-flight, almost knocking out one of the stewardesses getting hit by the canopy as it comes out of its canister under pressure. You know, it almost, it almost knocks her down. I mean, this whole hijack was a complete debacle, even though he managed to get to the ground with the money. He winds up jumping out of the aft stair like Cooper did. He lands somewhere uh, not far from where he lives in, in I think it was a, a Provo uh, in Utah. He, he's a Mormon, uh, so he lives in Utah. So he doesn't, you know, in, in much better conditions 
he jumped in the Cooper did, by the way. So McCoy gets to the ground, despite all his mistakes, he gets to the ground with all the money. He winds up hiding the money in a culvert, and he winds up hitchhiking a ride named uh, from a 16-year-old boy named Pete Zimmerman. And uh, Pete Zimmerman retells the story about when he picks McCoy up. And he said McCoy was really agitated. He took him to get a milkshake at this drive-thru. And then he ha- and then McCoy has uh, Pete Zimmerman drive him home uh, to like just a couple of blocks or so away from where he actually lived. So not real smart. Uh, he winds up going back to get the money where he hit it, the culvert. And uh, he's quickly caught because the news is everywhere. And the funniest thing about Richard Floyd McCoy is, is that at the time that he hijacked that plane, he was uh, working for the Utah State Guard as a helicopter pilot. He'd been a helicopter pilot in Vietnam, so he came back uh, when he was in, in uh, back to Utah, and he was flying for the Utah State Guard as a helicopter pilot. So he was actually called into work to look for himself. He's flying a helicopter around looking for himself, which I love that part of the McCoy story. Um, so it quickly got out uh, that you know he quickly gets caught. Uh, when uh you know i think uh he left a fingerprint on the plane a clear fingerprint uh, and of course his fingerprints were on file from being in the military in the army and uh that got traced to him and then his picture was out there got shown by uh pete zimmerman saw it and said that's definitely the guy uh that i gave a ride to that night his uh, best friend a guy named van iperin uh couldn't believe it but said yeah you know richard was telling me that how he, if he ever hijacked an airplane like D.B. Cooper, he wouldn't ask for a paltry 200000 He'd ask for 500000 even though uh, Van Iper could not believe that his friend did that because Richard Floyd McCoy was a devout Mormon. He was a Mormon Sunday school teacher, uh, lived among the Mormon community, and it meant a lot to him. And that's just not something a good Mormon boy does is, is uh, hijack an airplane for cash. But uh, McCoy quickly got got caught from all his mistakes, leaving the fingerprint, other other mistakes he made. And uh, they recovered all but about, I think, $10 of the half a million dollars. Uh, he eventually gets tried for the crime. Uh, some people think the judge was a little too harsh on him because he was a Mormon and they thought the judge was anti-Mormon. But McCoy breaks out of prison after being convicted. He fashions a gun out of dental paste, which was actually kind of smart. With a couple other guys, they break out with a garbage truck and a, and a fake gun and he's holed up somewhere in I think Virginia Beach, Virginia, and gets in a shootout with the FBI and the FBI and one FBI agent winds up uh, killing McCoy with a shotgun. It was actually his personal shotgun for that FBI agent, which is kind of a no no to kill a suspect with your personal weapon. But uh so that ends Richard Floyd McCoy right there. That's how he's he's killed in a shootout after being on the run. But it was a fascinating story. There really is an interesting cast of characters that swirls around the D.B. Cooper thing. It, it really, there really is. just Yeah, each suspect on their own is fascinating. McCoy, right. like Barb Dayton we talked about, e- each one of them, you could write a book about. Oh, McCoy had a book written about him called The, the Real McCoy, uh, about how a guy's just trying to make his strongest case for being D.B. Cooper, but... Uh, Barb Dayton has a book that was written by uh, her friend, the Foremans. Uh, they're all worthy of a book. Oh, these people are so, just, you know, they're all out of central casting. You know, they all deserve to be suspects in some way or another. Yeah, I just, uh, now I kind of have a much more harder time believing that it would be McCoy just for, as as bumbling as as the 
bumbling the other attempt was bumbling and a nervous wreck. And remember, McCoy was a uh, he was a Green Beret. He was in Special Forces. He did a tour in 1964 as uh, part of a demo team. And then he does a second tour later. He comes back from that first tour. He's working for a while. He gets he's married, and he does a second tour as a helicopter pilot. He winds up getting a distinguished flying cross, uh, which is a very you know one of the highest medals you can get as a pilot for for bravery. He was shooting up. Uh, uh, there was some uh, a North Vietnamese uh, army camp that he shot up. I think they had some American POWs there, and McCoy went in with that helicopter without. Without you know any hesitation, shooting that up, he was very, very brave. Uh, I talked to a guy that was in Vietnam with him, said, "You know, Richard had guts. You know, he was not scared of anything." But yet, when he did his hijacking, he was a nervous wreck. He called attention to himself. His uh, makeup was coming off. He left the, like I said, he left his hijack instructions in the waiting area. Those are mistakes made by uh, a, a guy that's nervous. And for rightly so, he's going to jump out of a plane after stealing half a million dollars. But that's the difference between D.B. Cooper uh, hijacking and, and Richard Floyd McCoy's. But Cooper was, by all accounts, so cool under pressure. Everybody that, that encountered him, mainly this, the uh, flight attendants, said that he was calm at all times. He was a little agitated when they didn't bring the money in a knapsack that he had asked for. It was in a bank bag. And uh, he got a little kind of antsy. When the refueling process took a little longer than what he thought it should take, um, he did inquire. Cooper did inquire if there were flight uh, air marshals on board, uh, but other than that, he was cool as a cucumber. And that's not what McCoy was during his hijacking. And then there's other things too that leaned against McCoy, uh, such as the fact that when he did it, of course they got his photographs in front of the entire flight crew of Flight 305, the Cooper flight, and not one of them said the hijacker resembled Richard Floyd McCoy. Right. Not one. Not one even said he looked similar. And then you get to the fact that Richard Floyd McCoy had a pretty distinct North Carolina accent. That's where he grew up. That's where he was from. He had a lisp because he was missing the flap under his tongue because uh, it was too taunt when he was growing up as a kid. And, and when they removed it, it, it gave him a permanent lisp. Um, and and one of the main things is, is that he was a devout Mormon Devout Mormons do not order alcohol as D.B. Cooper did and drink it uh, or smoke. So there's little things like that that the pro McCoy people never like to bring up. And uh, like I said, I did talk to somebody that was uh, a, a Green Beret with uh, Richard Floyd McCoy in Vietnam. And he said, I said, did you ever see him smoke in Vietnam? He said, no, he was a devout Mormon. No way. Never touched him. I mean, you think if he was going to be a a closet smoker or what they call a Jack Mormon, meaning a Mormon that kind of cheats a little bit. Uh, you would do it in Vietnam, you know, under that kind of pressure. But he said, never saw him touch a drink or a cigarette while he was in Vietnam. It's interesting how with all these um, suspects, how uh, the Vietnam war is a common denominator between a lot of them. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Which are three guys I think of. <laughs> that are you know have vietnam ties and one being richard Floyd mccoy uh had vietnam ties and another suspect named robert rackstraw um what was a vietnam combat vet as well but one thing that rackstraw has in common with mccoy is that they were both young at the time uh mccoy was 28 i believe and i think rackstraw was 27 years old everybody that saw cooper said they were middle-aged right so you know the mccoy uh, supporters say well mccoy looked older than his age you know but people looked a little bit 
you know, a little bit older than they were back then by age, but, you know, by concept alone of his voice and things that he talked about with uh, Tina Mucklow's, the person that spent the most time with D.B. Cooper, lit his cigarettes. Uh, she's the prime witness in the case. She's still alive. Uh, you think she being, I think she was 23 years old at the time could have told, you know, could have been able to tell she was talking to a, a 28 year old or a 27 year old and didn't wouldn't later describe as middle aged, even if he did look a little older for his age. Sure. Was he speaking in terms of a middle aged man? Probably not. So that's a big strike against uh, two of the top three Vietnam suspects. Right. And your suspect is a Vietnam vet. He would have been the right age. He was the right age. He was 43 years old at the time of the, of the hijacking and uh, 71. So, yeah, he was that age. And back then, you just didn't see even it, it, it drop zones for uh, sport parachuting, which was really still in its infancy in the, in the early 1970s. Uh, this was young guys doing that. I mean, it was cra- a crazy sport. Still is. But in the early 70s, it was it was still very young as a sport. And a lot of these guys already knew each other, even from different drop zones from state to state. They knew a lot of the instructors, a lot of people in common. And it was unheard of to see a man in his mid-40s, uh, even sport parachuting back then. And for the military as well. Uh, you know, average age of a Vietnam soldier, when they got to the, you know, got – sent to Vietnam was 19 years old. Right. Uh, special forces guys were average age was about 21, 22 because they had a little more training, uh, you know, to, to, to become special forces. So uh, a guy in his mid forties making that jump is already an anomaly. And also to the name DB Cooper, it's come to us as DB Cooper, but he buys a ticket under Dan Cooper and the yeah. name Dan Cooper actually does have some significance. It could, you know, we don't know. Of course, yes, he, he bought the ticket under Dan Cooper. DB came from a, 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 I think it was Associated Press screw up because when they, you know, yeah. had the name Dan Cooper, I think someone had found it in, in a news place. Well, we found a guy named uh, a DB Cooper that lived out somewhere outside of Portland, I think. And uh, that got heard over, picked up over a, a broadcast or something like that. And someone re-reported it as DB. And so the name just kind of stuck. And now it's legend. But, of course, um, you know, he bought the ticket under Dan Cooper, so it was always Dan Cooper. But uh, some people surmise he may have taken the name from a, a Franco-Belgian comic book called Dan Cooper, which is about a fictitious uh, Canadian pilot for the Royal Canadian Air Force. And that comic book really was only abundant in Belgium because uh, it was written in French. I think there was maybe um, – you know, there was never one in English. There might have been one in another language. I can't remember what it was, but uh, some people think that you could have bought them in Canada, and especially in a place like Quebec where they speak French, but that's never been proven. But it was it was uh, written by a guy named Albert Weinberg since the 1950s. And, you know, there's the guy was a fighter pilot, and there's a few of the covers where he's actually parachuting and stuff. So. Yeah. Some believe that he he took the name from the comic book, and I I'm uh, I'm open to that, but I don't I you know I think he probably just came up with a name on the spot that was you know not real rememberable. So let's talk about your suspect and the subject of your book, which is Ted Braden and yes. who who he was and what possibly lends him to being DB Cooper. 
Well, Ted Braden got on my radar because I, like I was telling you in the beginning, I'd gotten, you know, I was always into the case. Uh, never thought I would write about it or get too hardcore or really, you know, ever start, you know, being active on the message boards like a drop zone or the DB Cooper forum. I enjoyed reading them, but I never, you know, wanted to, to actually log in and go back and forth with these guys that were always fighting each other, arguing over suspects. Uh, but I got reinvigorated in the case. Uh, like I said, from listening to Galen Cook and learning about uh, his suspect, uh, uh, Wolfgang Gossett, and, I, and he made a good case for this guy. And I thought, hey, maybe this guy's figured it out. You know, he's very articulate, smart lawyer. Uh, so that kind of reinvigorated me into the case. And then not long after that, uh, a documentary about Robert Rackstraw came out uh, called D.B. Cooper Case Closed. And I was hoping when I started watching that show, I was like, hey, I hope this guy figured it out. Started with a compelling story, but then towards the end of that show, it was on the on the History Channel. Uh, his whole uh, suspect and case kind of falls apart on him towards the end, you know. So I was a little let down. So, But that did rekindle my interest uh and all things D.B. Cooper. So I'm reading one of the D.B. Cooper message boards one day, and a guy named Bruce Smith, who I know very well now, who we call the mayor of Cooperville. He wrote a book called D.B. Cooper and the FBI. Um, he was talking back and forth on the on the the and on the message boards with another uh, researcher that just goes under the name Snowman. And I don't even know if Bruce knows Snowman's real name, but that's just who he posts under. And they were talking about this guy named Ted B. Braden. And what everything I read just fascinated me that said that, uh, you know, when things started becoming declassified with the black ops unit in, in Vietnam called uh, MACB SOG, stands for Military Assistance Command Studies and Observations Group, uh, that, you know, they signed 20 year NDAs because this was uh, a group never talked about because they were doing things in Laos, uh, which was against the Geneva uh accord and everything like that so it was not supposed to be talked about it was the 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 real black ops unit and i love all things vietnam and special forces and i'd never heard of this group before at the time that i saw this and they're talking about this guy that was in it and how uh his name came up because people like bruce and snowman and i don't know if anyone else started asking these guys that were in this group mac v sog uh because these were the, the toughest of the tough of the green berets i mean there, you had your regular special forces, and then you had the black ops guys, which were a cut above. Uh, this the, the 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 baddest of the badasses, and they were asking, the, you know, different guys that had served in that group that, that they could find online, like, you know, hey, people have often said that DB Cooper hijack looked like a a covert type special forces operation. It, was there anybody among you that you thought could have been DB Cooper? And like Bruce wrote about in one of his articles on the Mountain News, he said, one name always came rushing to the forefront every time one of these guys was asked who they thought Cooper was. And that name was Ted B. Braden. It was never Richard McCoy from uh, another special forces. Uh, it was never a number two guy. You know, it was always Ted B. Braden. And the belief among these former special forces guys that Braden was Cooper was so high that it, it was it just – uh, just remarkable how they were all convinced. I mean, because a lot of these guys could have pulled the jump off because they were trained at being thrown out of helicopters and stuff in the middle of the night. They were being thrown into Laos where they were st what they you know totally sterile. You didn't have dog tags because our government couldn't admit that you were over there. So right. if you got caught over there, you were you were dead. If they couldn't yeah. rescue you, uh, you were dead. So these guys knew that going in. So that's how tough you had to be. 
And this uh, is basically because of the Ho Chi Minh Trail. Yes. That the North Vietnamese were supplying through Laos and Cambodia into South Vietnam. Yeah, they ha were having unfettered use of the Ho Chi Minh Trail, uh, yeah. going down there, delivering supplies down to the, the you know, uh, the south part of Vietnam, you know, and, and uh, arming guys, ar arming the Viet Cong. And, uh, you know, it's just creating a huge problem. So, yeah, that was the main reason to get these guys in there is to stop that that easy use of the Ho Chi Minh Trail uh, by doing things like uh, uh, prisoner snatches, getting our guys out, uh, sabotaging things. They were leaving uh, dummy weapons over there that when you shot our, our, our dummy ammo or you put it in the gun and it would blow up on you. Uh, any any kind of stuff like that they could do uh, is what they did. And one of the main things they would do is uh, wiretapping in Laos. And it was actually Ted Braden's team, which was called Team Colorado. He was a team leader. He was called a 1-0 is what a team leader was over there. And then the 1-1 would be the assistant team leader. And the 1-2 would be like a radio man. It was three Americans on a small team. And uh, the rest was filled out by what they would call indigenous personnel to the area's of Southeast Asia, mainly uh, a group called the Mountain Yards, which was a name from the French that meant mountain people, uh, was the main ethnic tribe that would fill out these, uh, what they call SOG teams. And Braden was a team leader of, of uh, Team Colorado in 1965, and they did the first successful wiretap in Laos uh, by getting a lot of important information that they you know they had to go up on a pole and do all this. Of course, they were being hunted as soon as they hit the ground because uh, you, know, you know the NBA knew those guys were over there and they were looking for them. And a lot of you know there was a lot of uh, their locations would sometimes get leaked and whatever. But very tough work, very very tough work. So just learning about Mac V. Sog and Ted Braden uh, got me got me hooked because I'm like uh, these guys are saying he could be Cooper. That gets my attention, especially legends in this group i got like uh billy waugh who's uh called the godfather of special forces this guy was one of the toughest ever lived he had eight purple hearts more awards than you could list he spent 50 years between uh vietnam special forces and cia black ops and billy uh i talked to him personally you know he passed away i think a, a year and a half ago no two years ago or so uh told me personally that he firmly believed ted Braden was db cooper uh, a guy named John Plaster believed that uh, Braden was Cooper, a uh, real famous uh, Vietnam Special Forces guy, a sniper trainer. And by hearing these guys, force, you know, stories about how convinced they were that Braden was Cooper, I wanted to take it to the next level. You know, I wanted to find out everything I could about this guy because I was – Cooper or not, I was fascinated by him already because Billy Wall had made the comment that Ted Braden had balls of steel – and I mean, that's coming from Billy Wall, one of the most decorated soldiers in history. I said, this guy has balls of steel. I go, that's what Cooper had, in my opinion. And another thing that kept coming up about Braden and people that fought with him in Vietnam that knew him said that he had an unusual calmness under fire. He would never get rattled. He was always as calm as he could be. He literally had no fear of death. Uh, one night he slept on the edge of an NVA bunker in Laos uh for like three hours if they found him not only were they going to kill him they were going to torture him for as long as they could if they got one of those guys over there but he just had no fear he would walk on open trails in laos which was a huge no-no you did not walk on an open trail because then they could start tracking you but he just had no fear of this um so the more i learned about him the more i got enthralled so i just kept 
I tried to push the envelope on everything that was ever known about Ted Braden. So that's what basically led up to the book. And he's in Vietnam. And he had also been, uh, he had also at 16 lying about his age was in world war two. Yep. And he was a, he was a paratrooper. He's a paratrooper at world war two. Like you said, he lied about his age. He was six, just had turned 16 at the time. Uh, he had his aunt go with him who kind of took care of him. Cause he had a bit of a bit of a rough childhood living with his stepfather who was kind of abusive to him. Uh, and his mother would take long trips with her father because uh, his mother's mother died in childbirth when she had given birth to Ted's mother. So he had often would be at home with his stepbrother and uh, or his half brother, sorry, his half brother and his, uh, his stepfather who did not treat him too well. He treated his own son pretty well, but not poor old Ted. So Ted just wanted to get out of that situation winds up joining to go fight in World War II at age 16, uh, joins the 101st Airborne, the Screaming Eagles out of Fort Campbell, Kentucky, uh, gets qualified airborne. And uh, he goes over to fight in World War II just after D-Day, but he catches the end of the war during the Battle of the Bulge, uh, fighting in a lot of the, 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 the battles over there. Uh, my friend Ryan Burns found a rare account of Tread Braden in World War II, which was you know, a needle in the haystack to find it. And it talked about how he was with his unit. He was with the um, 704th uh, Parachute Inter- Infantry Division, uh, B Battalion, uh, E Company, and that was Easy Company, kind of like the famed uh, uh, Band of Brothers unit. But all, all E's were uh, Easy Company. But he was in the same basic, you know, larger group than the Band of Brothers group was at age 16. But in this account, they talked about how young Ted at 16 would go out to the the the, the listening post to watch the German soldiers go by uh, trying to get surveillance on them. And he'd do this by himself without any concern from his safety at age 16, just on pure adrenaline, he would go out there to watch these German soldiers go by. So he's uh, in active combat at age 16. He gets two personal bronze stars um, from being in combat over there, manages not to get killed. And he's basically uh, comes home a war hero after that uh, before his 18th birthday, he's already a war hero and uh, goes to uh, college for a couple of years. He's uh, originally from Toledo, Ohio. And uh, all he knows is, is, is the uh, the adrenaline he liked in the military. So he has this on again, kind of off again um, love affair with being in the, in the military. And he knows he's really great at one thing that they taught him, which was how to jump out of an airplane. And he winds up being so good at it that he's, uh, teaching what's called halo, which is high altitude, low opening parachuting techniques that he learned. Uh, he was a member of the golden arrows, which was, uh, the first military, uh, uh, sport diving team that, that did competitions all over Europe. And, uh, Ted would often win most of these. He was so good at skydiving. He would win these competitions everywhere. He was just probably the best parachutist that was ever in the army. Yeah, I mean, and you make the point in the book and some of your videos that he is the one that had so much experience with what he did and and really was the guy that we could have been the one that pulls this off. There's he, this- easily, he could have done it blindfolded, and that's yeah. But the interesting thing that kept me hooked on him, which I still am, of course, is that among MACV Sogs, and there was around twelve or, or thirteen hundred total 
men that were ever in that elite elite unit. Um, others could have done that jump because these guys were all highly trained. They were all badasses, uh, but they were like Braden was in his own league, and it was just uh, he had a criminal mindset, and they knew that he had a, he was a convicted felon later on. He, uh, when he was in Vietnam, he was always working the black market for extra money. He didn't fight for glory, not in Vietnam. Uh, he was over there to make money, period. I mean, that's all he ever wanted to do is score an extra buck. So he constantly worked the black market. He was uh, hanging around with the CIA boys in Saigon quite a bit. The plane would take him back to the camp wherever he was with his other guys, and it would off, often dip its wing, meaning Ted's coming back, you know, CIA's dropping him off. But, um, not just the fact that he had the skills better than any any other known suspect, but it's just something that they believed he would do, that he would come up with that caper and actually follow through with it. And that's something that separates Ted Braden from any other D.B. Cooper suspect is that I personally have talked to nine people who knew him personally that are all convinced he was D.B. Cooper. Yeah. Nobody else can really say that. I mean, McCoy's young kids at the time might believe that later, but they were like one and five years old. But these are grown people that knew him as grown adults at the time that knew him. And these are separate groups of people that don't even know each other that got together like, hey, do you think it's Ted? And that, that's not what happened here. It's different people from different times of his life uh, are convinced he was D.B. Cooper, such as his jumping partner from the the Golden Arrows uh, sport team in the, in the Army. Uh, a guy named you know Al Tire that I talked to, uh, unfortunately, he passed away from a stroke about three years ago, but I got to talk to Al at length and Al's story. I, I keep going back to Al's story of running into Ted Braden at a truck stop in Bowling Green, Kentucky and seeing Ted up at the, at the bar having uh, lunch. And uh, Al walks in and says, Ted Braden, because he notices him and Ted almost kind of startled by it, winds up having an hours long conversation with Al. Uh, Ted Braden's driving a truck at that time in, in, in 73 for Pittsburgh plate glass and they're in the cab of the truck. And this was – and Al's just such a, a, a good a good guy, ex-military veteran himself, um, had a really good life. And he's telling me the story about sitting in Braden's – the cab of his truck. And Ted Braden says to Al Tyre, said, hey, what did you think of that D.B. Cooper thing? And, you know, as a parachute is to another. And Al said, yeah, I heard about it. But, he, you know, Al, Al just wasn't that interested in it. And he said that, that – that Ted was just really dejected that Al didn't light up about the whole D.B. Cooper thing. And, you know, I think it was almost a near confession. I don't think Braden would have ever confessed, but I think he was trying to signal to Al that it was him. And uh, years later, Al tires at a, at a, at a parachute club at an army base and parachutist magazine was out and had an article about D.B. Cooper and the famous sketch. I, I don't know if it was what we call composite A or B, uh, that was in that magazine. But when Al Tire saw it, he just almost fell to the floor. It hit him right then and there. Yeah, Ted was Cooper. And he believed it for the rest of his life until he died. He was fully convinced that Braden was Cooper. Just He said it was that look of the sketch, He just what Ted was like, what he would do, what he said to him in the cab of that truck, uh, made a huge believer out of Al Tire. You also point out this – could be debatable, but his last wife said that Braden was D.B. Cooper. She did. She said that to her her youngest daughter. Uh, her name is Camille. She lives in Charlotte, North Carolina. I was really lucky to get Camille to talk to me because uh, I don't think they really she really remembered her stepfather 
very favorably. She has, uh, I think, two older sisters that knew him, which I'd love to talk to as well, but I never had that opportunity. But I did get to uh, discuss them with with his uh, youngest stepdaughter at the time. And she did, you know, say that her mother told her her name was Pauline Braden. They had stayed married. Uh, even though they had a really uh, a rocky relationship, they were separated for different periods of for long periods yeah. of time, but they never officially got divorced. And uh, Pauline kept the name, uh, but she said yes. Pauline did say that he told her he was DB Cooper, and it was a confession. But by the time that uh, Pauline had told her daughter that she had the early starts of dementia, so she said, you know, she did believe it. But you have to take into account that she was starting to get mm-hmm. get some some lighter dementia. Uh, unfortunately, but the family, including Camille's son, uh, they all knew that through the years that they believed that he was Cooper and that he had told the mother that, and that she could even remember when she was young in 1971, they were living in a penthouse in Chicago. She had always wondered how they had the money they had. Uh, they both drove her mother and Ted both drove newer Mercedes. They had a penthouse and she said, how how does a long haul truck driver make that kind of money? But you have to consider that Ted was committing other felonies um of course db cooper committed a felony so it just ties in but uh he was doing things like have arranging to have his load stolen uh and then splitting the money he got caught for stealing some fish and meat but the interesting about ted braden is that every time he got caught or in trouble he got let go uh he knew too much he had high high up friends at the state department he uh, he knew all the illegal act- activities that were going on in Vietnam. Uh, a, a lot of stuff that probably never got, you know, told to this day. But he had access to all that because he was doing things for the CIA. Uh, you know, and I was told that he had not only secrets from uh, Southeast Asia during the Vietnam War, but Ted knew globally a lot of things that the CIA was doing. Um, so they think that's just one thing that kept him out of trouble. They didn't want him talking. Uh, in addition to having some powerful friends like, uh, General Jack Singlob, yeah. who he knew from the early sixties from being a member of the golden arrows and seeing him at the parachute club, uh, for the fifth division, uh, and telling world war two stories. Cause Singlob, of course came out of, uh, something called the OSS, the Office of Strategic Services, right. which was the predecessor to the Special uh, uh, special Forces, and he later co-founded the CIA. So it's a good friend to have. I'd say so, absolutely. And he knows some of this because of this episode that happens where he basically deserts yeah. from, from yeah. Vietnam at the end of 1966 and ends up going to the Congo and tries to enlist as a mercenary Yes. You know, and um, so there is that too, you know, and, and yeah, basically the CIA kind of the, the CIA kind of just kicks him out of there. Um, but uh, you also use some linguistic um, comparisons too. I, something I love that, using the, uh, the, the, you know, the, the, the phrases that Ted Braden used. Um, which we only know because he, you know, there was a lengthy article about Ted Braden. And I know people that are just listening, this can't see it, but I'm holding a, an original copy of Ramparts magazine has a picture of John Lennon on the front wearing a, uh, an army uniform, like he's in Vietnam, but this was a, the October yeah. 1967 issue of Ramparts. And this in Ramparts uh, was a magazine that was kind of like, uh, you know, they're very anti Vietnam war. 
And their military editor was a guy named Don Duncan, who was former special forces in Vietnam, who turned down a promotion uh, after he finished a tour. And he became very disillusioned with what was going on in Vietnam. So he wound up becoming like uh, a big uh, advocate for all things anti-Vietnam War. And he winds up uh, interviewing Ted Braden for an article in the magazine uh, because he had known Braden from uh, Vietnam. And it, it, it's just a, it's a fascinating article that talks about him being, uh, you know, deserting from Vietnam. He goes, uh, comes back to the United States. He goes over to Belgium and he gets recruited into five commando and he's fighting in the Congo for a short period of time. And like you mentioned, he got uh, the CIA found out about it, uh, gets arrested. They take him back to Fort Dix and I know the story there because I know the guy that oversaw him at Fort Dix, a guy, a good friend of mine, uh, who told where that story picked up. Uh, but in but g- going back to the linguistics, it, it you know Ted writes half of the article. The first half is Don Duncan kind of giving you the background on Braden and how he knew him, and uh, talks about him. And then the second part is Braden talking about going to the Congo, and when when Braden's talking about some of the things back in Vietnam. He uses all these really interesting phrases about, uh, you know, how he would insult people. He called uh, the agency boys in Saigon. He called them chair-bound commandos. And he had all these interesting ways of insulting people. And it's it's so similar to what we call D.B. Cooper letter number six, because uh, that's an interesting letter. Of course, there was letters written after the D.B. Cooper hijacking, which most are believed to be hoaxes or just people that were having fun. That's a part um, of this that I I had no idea. I didn't know that there were letters that were ascribed to DB Cooper. There were there were there was there was yeah. there were six of them that are mostly known. Um, one actually had little cutout letters from uh, Playboy magazine, and it, you know what handwritten at all. Each little individual letters cut out from different ads, and they, they actually found the actual issue of Playboy where they were cut from. And it said the syst- I am DB Cooper. The you know it said the system that beats the system, all this kind of cryptic stuff. But they were always signed DB Cooper, and that's something that I always thought was odd because that was never his name. He gave the name Dan Cooper, which yeah. I'm pretty sure wasn't his real name, right? Uh, yeah, it's, but I it's, never thought it's the, so the real it's so guy. Remin- it's so reminiscent of the Zodiac stuff. Too. Uh, it's reminiscent, yes, with the letters, it, it, it is right. for sure. Uh, although most of the Zodiac letters are considered to have actually been written by the Zodiac other than a few. Uh, most of the Cooper letters are considered just to be, you know, forgeries, but we have no one to match it to. Uh, but one thing that I always thought was odd about at least the first five uh, were that they were always signed DB Cooper. And I would be like, you know, that's the name that caught on, but he gave the name Dan Cooper. I, I never thought he'd be that, uh, excited about latching onto it, a name that he didn't use, which is one reason, another reason I like uh, the sixth letter that came out. And it, this letter talks about uh, I had to do something with the skills that uncle taught me. And I, that just really grabbed my attention. Like well, uncle, who's uncle and uh, the skills that uncle taught you. And what he's talking about is, is the military, the military. He's talking about uncle Sam uh taught you how to jump out of a plane and that's how that letter reads and it's um i had to do something to relieve the frustration uh so don't bother going to look for me you know tell the lackey cops to quit looking for me there's the phrase lackey cops uh that was in db cooper letter number six that sounds like something ted braid would say all day long it says uh it uses the term world idiots 
you know, uh, he's talking about the government and he uses the term world idiots. Like, what is a world idiot? That's uh, we know what idiot means. But what's a world idiot? Um, he's talking about someone that's traveled all around the world. This is CIA, how the CIA controls everything. They control the, the mercenary wars in the Congo that he wrote about in Ramparts. They control everything. They go into different governments and they play both sides. This is what the CIA does. I think that's what he's referring to in that letter. World idiots, uh, lackey cops. Uh, it's That's just how Braden would insult people like chairbound commandos and ramparts and competent Vietnamese officers and officials. Uh, you know, there's a lot of alliteration in these. So, I, yeah, like in my book, I do a comparison of uh, ramparts versus D.B. Cooper letter number six. And, it, you know, the, in D.B. Cooper's uh, number six, anyway, shortens Uncle Sam to uh, something, you know, the skills that Uncle taught me. And Ramparts, he uses a line where he just says Sam, and he's clearly referring to Uncle Sam. Uh, and that's not common to break up Uncle Sam between Uncle and Sam. Uh, it's it's really linguistically similar, the way that Braden wrote compared to that letter number six. And it was signed a rich man. It was not signed D.B. Cooper. It said, uh, by the way, D.B. Cooper is not my real name. He says that in the letter. D.B. Cooper is not my real name. Uh, and he, it signs sincerely a rich man. And that's just, that's just something that Braden would write. I don't know why he would write it, but it sounds exactly how he wrote things. So, uh, that, that, that was one of the better pieces I thought was comparing that letter to, to the Ramparts article, right. which was Ramparts was written way before the hijack. And so it's not like he was trying to alter his speech to make people think he was Cooper. Yeah, and you point out that um, he calls Duncan Dunk. Yes. You know, so it's very dunk. similar to saying Unk and then... Unk and Dunk, yeah. yeah. So good Unk. I think Unk was in the in the Cooper letter, and he calls uh, Dan, uh, Don Duncan Dunk, and that was never his nickname in Vietnam. His name was, was Don. It was short enough. You didn't need to shorten it. And that's something that Dead Braden would do to act like he knew you better than he did. But, you know, like, hey, I can call you Dunk, and no one else does. Uh you know, like you're my buddy. Of course, he was going to hit Donald Duncan up for some money because that's what Ted Braden's whole uh, quest in life was, was an extra dollar, no matter how he could get it. If it was done by criminal means, all the better. I mean, he his whole um, his, his whole reason for it, his whole, uh, uh, you know, his whole impetus for even being D.B. Cooper you don't need it. I mean, it's, it's it's written right here in this magazine. It's all about how he was always looking to make an extra dollar in Vietnam, in the Congo. It was he went to fight in the Congo as a mercenary because they paid more than what he was making as a uh, sergeant first class in Vietnam. It was all about the money. Um, this is motive. I mean, everybody needs a motive. What was DB Cooper's motive? Uh, money. If it was Ted Braden, his motive was written about years earlier in this magazine so he's got motive all day long uh convicted felon of course it's a circumstantial case i make for Braden. uh like mark messer likes to remind me you can't put him on the plane even though mark does like Braden as a suspect i know he does because he even asked billy wall about him uh but you can't put any of these guys on the plane you can't put kenny christensen on the plane you can't put mccoy on the plane uh if we could uh, this would already be solved. If you if somebody saw one of the known suspects on the plane or tied him into DNA or anything else, this is fit, this is solved. Uh, but to this day, it's it's a circumstantial case. 
Brain's case, of course, is circumstantial, but I think it's a strong one. I can't put him in Portland, but boy, if I could around that time period, I think it's 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 a game set match. Yeah, that's what I was going to ask if if anyone could possibly put him and put him in Portland. I'm working. I am working on it with another researcher, kind of behind the scenes. Yeah, he's got a great theory uh, about and believes it's Braden, a really smart person I'm working with that found me and it got you know sucked into the vortex and and listened to every episode of the Cooper Vortex and listen to my, I d- I've done that show twice with Darren and uh, she locked into Braden and, and, and Darren cover- has covered every suspect you could think of probably more than once. He's done McCoy a lot. He's done at least two or three on Weber and the guy that, that he, I can't remember the gentleman's name that makes a case for Weber. It wasn't, it wasn't Joe. I think he actually did it after Joe had passed away, but he knew Joe Weber and he makes a great case for Dwayne Weber. Who's otherwise not a great suspect. But he makes a, a good, passionate uh, case for Joe Weber. But Darren covers every every suspect under the sun in that show, good, bad, or ugly, because it's just about getting the story out. You know, Barb Dayton's covered. Um, well, Walter here, Recca, who's terrible. <laughs> here's what I wonder, and I wonder this about the Zodiac Killer as well, um, which I think is extremely likely that the Zodiac Killer was too people i won't disagree there um is there a possibility that if it was Braden, that one guy did the hijacking one guy jumped out the plane that's established but is there a possibility that there could have been accomplices that he might have had on the ground and it could have been some of these other guys bruce smith really likes that theory bruce knows the case well bruce is a big conspiracy guy which ties into your show and like Bruce said, if you like conspiracies and you like D.B. Cooper, your suspect's Ted Braden all day long. He's the conspiratorial suspect because he's the guy that the CIA does not want you to know about. He doesn't want you. They don't want you to know the guy ever existed uh, because he knew a lot of stuff. And if Braden was Cooper, and I do believe he was, they could not tell you he was D.B. Cooper because they cannot arrest him and keep him in jail for an extended period of time because he's going to he's going to talk about what he knows uh he's going to have a friend like seeing lob get him out he's got had other friends in the state department he's got powerful friends and he just cannot be held against his will if he doesn't like it he's going to talk he's going to dead man switch whatever i mean because a lot of people say why wouldn't they just kill him they're worried about what he knew well he might have had a friend that was going to mail put some letters in the mail and whatever Braden knew, it was some pretty, pretty big time stuff. I mean, he might have had lots of knowledge of assassinations, not only in yeah. Vietnam, but anywhere. Well, um, I mean, and that in 1971, I don't know. I mean, I think the Pentagon Papers that had maybe dropped at that point. But in 1971, I don't think too many people knew what was really going on in Laos and Cambodia. Oh, they had no idea. Well. I don't think too many people knew what the CIA involvement was in, in Africa. No, they, they did not know. Yeah. And they didn't like people talking about it. That's why when the when the CIA found out that Braden was fighting a, as a mercenary down there, they wanted him picked up quick. And, of course, he deserts from Vietnam. He's a deserter. He's listed as a deserter. I mean, in, in certain wars, if you got caught being a deserter, you're, you're, the punishment was hanging. Uh it's a very serious offense. 
and he gets uh, taken back to the United States. He's confined at Fort Dix uh, for a while. And uh, he's in his jail cell there. He's overlooked by a guy named Hank Birch, who I know well. He's still alive. Uh, who was, a, I think, uh, maybe a, a lieutenant back then. He later became a captain. But he's overseeing Braden in confinement at Fort Dix, New Jersey, in the stockade. And he remembers Ted Braden had cigars in his jail cell. And that was unheard of at Fort Dix. He has cigars. They would, it would never give you anything like that there because the prisoners would clog up the toilets with stuff like cigarette butts, cigars, whatever they could get their hands on. Yeah. So they just weren't allowed. But yet Braden had these nice cigars while in his jail cell. He had a television set in 1960, right. uh, late, uh, that was in 67, had a, uh, or early, or late 66, had a television, no, early 67, sorry, in his jail cell. That is true. From Hank Birch, he's like, this, this was unheard of. So it comes the time for a Braden to be court-martialed for desertion. And um, a guy named Harold K. Johnson, uh, who was the head of uh, of the Army at the time, I mean, the only person higher than him at all was the President of the United States, um, calls down to Fort Dix and says, uh, we're not going to have the uh, court-martial for Ted Braden today. And they were like, why not? Well, we don't have enough MPs to support the cure, uh, secure the courtroom. And uh, Hank was like, are you kidding? This place is crawling with MPs. This is Fort Dix. You could look out the window and see 20 of them. So it was just something contrived they came up with. Mm -hmm. uh, but Harold K. Johnson was the head of the Army at the time. And he's intervening on the behalf of Ted Braden, the deserter. And they basically wound up uh, just letting him go with, with a general discharge under honorable conditions, meaning he could still be buried in Arlington. And here, a, a deserter? Really gets a sweet deal like that, and Braden actually balks at getting that deal because they took his special wristwatch, which we still don't know what it did. But uh, he says, "I'm not doing anything to give me my watch back." But apparently, he never got the watch back, but took the deal. But uh, you know, he was just like, "So what?" I mean, a deserter got an you know discharge under honorable conditions uh, after desertion. So it shows you right there the kind of pull that he had and who was intervening on his behalf, including Harold K. Johnson at the time. So he it's proven that he had these high contacts uh, either because they liked him or they feared him or a combination of both. So if he's Cooper, they cannot arrest him. They're not going to show his photographs to the, to the flight attendants because if they say that's him, that's the man, um, then you got to arrest him and he's going to have to do at least 10 years or whatever it may be. Uh, but he never – the interesting thing is, is so many of the FBI 302s have been released now. Uh, Ryan Burns has a searchable database for those FBI 302s, and there's a lot of documents on the Cooper case. Braden's name never comes up once. I mean, he would have been a natural just coming out of the Army of what Special Forces said they believe was D.B. Cooper. But there's not one reference to Ted Braden in there. And it's not just because he was in a covert unit. It is now unclassified. They could have just redacted that. But his name comes up, does not come up at all in one FBI 302 document. Now, that's telling. That's actually more in his favor than it is not. Because if he comes up and say, well, we looked at him and we determined he was in uh, Ohio at the time of the hijacking, it doesn't come up. His name never comes up. And several other suspects do. And they talk about why they were ruled out or this and that. But Braden never comes up at all. Despite being the number one pick from 
I mean, anyone in special forces, fifth special forces in SOG who believed they was DB Cooper doesn't come up in the FBI documents at all. Uh, I think that's telling. Yeah. Also too. I mean, I think the element is too, that like basically if we believe that letter too, that just like uncle Sam trained this guy to do this. Yeah. The skill set. Yeah. The skills that uncle taught him, he had to do it yeah. to, it says to do it to relieve himself of frustration. He was frustrated. He had a grudge. D.B. Cooper said on the plane he had a grudge. Uh, he told Tina Mucklow, the flight attendant, that she said, why do you have a, a grudge against our, our airline? And Cooper's response was, no, I just have a grudge. And, of course, what was Braden's grudge? He could not, and taking that deal and getting that general discharge under honorable conditions, he had to sign that he could never, ever join the military again. And that's yeah. all he really knew. Right. That was his life, yeah. That was his life, jumping out of airplanes. So what is he going to do? I'm going to use these skills that Uncle taught me, and I'm going to rob a 727 of 200 grand. And that's another thing. Going back to the whole story, at the time that D.B. Cooper did that, it wasn't widely known, and actually it was top secret knowledge that that particular plane could be jumped like that. The only people that at the time it had ever been done was some test flights over Thailand, Back during the Vietnam days, only a few people knew that 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 could be done. The pilots did not know it could be done. That's why they refused to take off with the aft staircase down. Of course, Cooper wanted the staircase down because it would have been easier to jump out with it down. And he knew that the plane could take off with the stair down, but he relented and let them raise it uh, because if he can't get the stair down in flight, he's in a a, a metal gel cell. You yeah. know, so there's some some stress there because something could go wrong with the hydraulic or whatever that, that that lowers that that staircase in flight. Of course, he did get it down and famously jumped, but um, he knew that 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 plane could be jumped. And these special forces guys, certain ones in Vietnam, knew that plane could be jumped. I talked to at, at least a few of the guys that knew Braden in Vietnam. Said, yeah, he would have known that for sure. I knew it. A uh, guy like Leonard Tilly told me that. He goes, I knew it could be jumped. Uh, and he didn't even like Ted Braden, but he goes, yeah, I firmly believe Ted Braden was D.B. Cooper. He said, I'd bet my home, my distinguished service wow. cross, and my life. He said, my home, my distinguished service cross that he got for Valor in Vietnam, and my life that Ted Braden was D.B. Cooper. And that came from a guy named Leonard Tilly that knew Ted Braden in Vietnam and did not like him personally at all. He said he made him nervous. Yeah. Uh, said he would would do all those things that, that he was that confident that he was Cooper. Was Braden the type of person that would brag or was he not? I mean, I, I guess if he was DV Cooper, then he never bragged, really bragged about it, except maybe a few slick. Never people. bragged. He's the type that could, that could keep a secret. Right. Uh, you know, Al Tyre, who knew him well when he was his teammate on the Golden Arrows, uh, Braden was married three times. His last wife was Pauline. Uh, his second wife was, uh, her name was Patricia Blizzard Braden. And uh, Al Tire had, had lived with them in Germany for a while when they were stationed in Germany in the early 1960s before Braden went to Vietnam in 65. Uh, he knew Ted really well, close friend, knew his second wife very well. And um, Al did not know that Braden had two biological children. And when he found that out, that I found it out, he was his mind was blown. He's like, I just I'm stunned that he would never tell me that. Like even if he was estranged 
or did not give them any, you know, a child support or whatever it was called back in the day. Uh, he was stunned as well as he knew him that he never confided in him that he had two biological children, which is a fact that he did. Yeah. And he was and never told anyone in Vietnam that nobody, no one knew it. Uh, back to his stepdaughter, the only reason that I really got her attention is when I, because he's obviously not her favorite subject, but that I told her, I said, did you realize he had two biological children? And she said, really? Like she couldn't believe it. Uh, she that's had no idea. Yeah, She had zero idea. Her wow. mother had no idea. Uh, no one had any clue. Of course, he was very estranged from them. Um, I've tried to get a hold of both of them, and I've had zero luck. He's got a grandson who's an attorney in Chicago. Will not talk. Um, I have my friend Ryan I mentioned. Uh, he's an attorney in Mississippi, and usually an attorney will give a little bit of a you know, listen to another attorney just as a kind of a courtesy as, uh, as people that are attorneys and uh, he would not respond to Ryan. Uh, we know who he is. We know where he lives. We know his email address and his phone number. He isn't talking. Uh, I don't know how much he might know or not, but we just said, like, Hey, you know, we just want to share what we have. And he is not interested in talking whatsoever, uh, which is just kind of adds to the mystery, I guess. One last question about this is one of the things that I've heard, one of the arguments I've heard for D.B. Cooper died in the jump is that if the money had been spent, it would have been tracked by the basically, the, I guess, the FBI because they would have had the serial numbers. And that's how they knew that that $5,800 was from the Cooper jump. Yeah, they did. It did. It had serial numbers that were recorded. They were all, had all been written down, typed. Yeah. Um, like I, I did say, yes, not a number, another $20 bill has ever shown up in circulation. Right. But back then, you didn't have the internet. You know, you couldn't just look them up at a casino. And there was different ways of laundering that money. There was a, a global yeah. uh, money exchange that went on that, that people knew about, especially that had been in Vietnam, where you could have easily taken it to a foreign country and filtered it out. Uh, it's definitely possible that money got a swap for something else. Some in another country that just never made its way back, you know, to somebody that would have actually bothered to, uh, to try to match it up. Of course, the serial numbers were available, but you didn't have the internet where you could just pull up the whole list of the bills. Right. Um, right. One thing I know that Ryan's working on is looking for what's called star notes, which I think are collectible, like a, a, a twenty dollar bill that you would keep because it was more collectible because it had the star on it. Which I don't know if it was like one out of every twenty bills, but some of the Cooper bills would have been star notes. So uh, he's trying to go find people that might own these star notes from. I think mostly the Cooper money was at nineteen sixty nine mark twenty dollar bills. So they're they're looking for it that way. So if one of those ever did turn up, I think it would be a great proof that he did survive. But uh, no, one's never shown up. And that could be made for an argument, but they never found the body. They never found the parachute. Uh, you know, it was very survivable. Of course, the water, if you fell in the water, it's very cold. You might, you probably would have died, but the water to the ratio where we think he jumped was maybe 10%. So he would have just been very unlucky if he hit the water and was able to get, not able to get yeah. out. But uh, most people in the vortex, lean towards it lean towards survival because it was it was very survivable uh it wasn't an easy jump uh but a guy like Braden could have done it with it with his with you know blindfolded yeah. but the interesting thing about the cooper case is you could make a good argument that he wasn't uh an experienced jumper 
You could make an argument that he was, and you could make a, a solid argument that he wasn't. That's just how this case is, unfortunately. Uh, people would say, you know, why did he, why did he, you know, why would an experienced uh, parachutist not bring their own parachute on? Uh, it's a good question because a lot of them would have only trusted their own gear. Uh, a guy like Braden, who was really not afraid of death, probably would have figured that he, since he's getting four parachutes total, and of course that was smart because they were thinking he's going to take a hostage with him. So uh, one of the parachutes was famously a reserve that was sewn shut for training by a guy named Earl Cossey, which is really interesting when you get into stuff like conspiracies with D.B. Cooper, because uh, Earl Cossey was who claimed to su supply the parachutes, and it was kind of in dispute with another guy named Norman Hayden. But we do know that Earl Cossey packed at least two of the parachutes. Uh, it came out, you know, uh, at one point saying how survivable the jump was. And then all of a sudden he changes his tune and says, no, I think D.B. Cooper died. And he was the go-to guy for the FBI uh, for years on the Cooper case. And he kind of got outed in a book called Skyjack by a guy named Jeffrey Gray, which is still the best-selling D.B. Cooper book about how, you know, how he flip-flopped and did, you know, it made his, it really hurt his credibility when that book came out. And then later uh, Earl Cossey's murdered uh, at his home in Washington. He's, he's, He's murdered in his driveway. Nothing was stolen from his house. His wallet was taken. And then uh, weeks later, the contents from his wallet are mailed back to his uh, son and daughter uh, with no note. You know, somebody found the contents of the wallet and didn't say where they found it. Anything that may have, you know, tried to lead, uh, lead to uh, Earl's killer. So that's another, you know, just one of those big Cooper conspiracy type deals is, what did Cossie know and why was he murdered? Because to this day, they have not caught the person that killed Earl Cossie, who was definitely involved in this case uh, and, and did pack the parachutes. Yeah. So that might lend to the fact that there could be some collaboration or something, you know, some, some yeah, kind or he of knew accomplices. Something, or he knew something yeah. and they were afraid of what right. he knew. I mean, you know, a lot of people, oh, why no one died? It wasn't, it wasn't that important, but you never know. I mean, Maybe they did not want it, whatever he may have known getting out. And, and that's, you know, it could, it could have been just uh, a failed robbery. Uh, they, they killed this guy, but it's strange. You know, the only thing that was taken was his wallet. And the strange thing about it was the contents were, were mailed back. And uh, no one ever, they didn't say where they found it. It didn't, didn't have a name, no return address. They were just simply mailed back to his children with with no clue like i mean that might have been a good lead for investigators oh i found this wallet behind a dumpster over on m street you know and then they could go asking questions around there but they, they didn't and they put out a reward for the person to come forward uh with with full anonymity to say please just tell us where you found the wallet no one ever came forward well drew this has been uh this has been fascinating i mean this has been a a fascinating interview and i feel like you really just we've just kind of really just scratched the surface on just how deep and complex this case is um uh i think what we'll do as far as like the uh the zodiac killer stuff i'd love to have you come back on and talk about that uh yeah, definitely. sometime um yeah, that's that's you, another that's yet another rabbit hole <laughs> big rabbit hole for sure so we'll probably schedule that up at a certain point and sometime coming up in the new year. But um, Drew, can you tell people where they can find, uh, find your books and uh, sure. all that good stuff? Yeah, it's all on Amazon. Uh, I have a website, it's drewbeasonbooks.com. 
I have a YouTube channel called uh, Drew Beeson, True Crime and Missing People on YouTube. And that's a good way to find me. And then a lot of this material is on there for free. If you're not a big reader, like I, I'm not a big reader. So uh, you can find a lot of this stuff on YouTube, uh, Zodiac stuff, uh, Ted Braden, and of course, Yuba County 5 that we talked about and some other things as well. All right. Yeah. And you were the first guest on the reboot of Banal of America. Yeah, I really enjoyed uh, that. That I highly recommend that interview, guys, if you want to find uh, more about the Yuba County Five and some of the work Drew has done on that. So um, it's been very, very, very interesting stuff. Stay on the line for me. I'm just going to close this show out. But uh, guys, I want to thank you guys for uh, listening to the show. Uh, we are rapidly approaching the end of the year. And as always, we have Dr. Future coming out to... Uh, in the year with us and that will be the next episode and uh hopefully Sergio will be back with us as well but uh we will catch you on the next episode of conspiranormal